We're glad you, you've joined us for our online service here at Kyoki. We have uh, come to a point where we are catching back up to Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We took 2023 right up to the brink of, of the holiday season and studied Romans 1 through 11. And, uh, and now we're back picking up in chapter 12 with this amazing book that has been the foundation of much of Christian doctrine, theology, but as we're gonna see in this last section, it's also the foundation of Christian practice, why we do what we do. If, if you've got children, you, you probably know what it's like to have at least one, if not however many children you've got, ask the question, why? Why do we do this? Why are you telling me to do that? Why, why? Well, it's not really, a, it's really not a bad question to ask, even when it comes to why we do what we do as followers of Christ. So let's do this. Um, let's read just two verses we're gonna to spend today and next time looking at, and, uh, and, and, and we'll get into why we do what we do. So, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It's, uh, it's, it's always challenges us, and Lord, through it, you change us. And so we would just ask that in our time together, you would open our eyes that we'll see, not just with a physical sight, but with spiritual eyes, and that we'll hear spiritual ears and that you'll change us spiritually from the inside out help us to understand what it means to live for christ together and why we should so we love you we ask all these things in, in his name amen well um when you come to the book of romans Romans 12.1 serves a bit like a, like a hinge, or if you prefer, like a bridge. Um, and, and, and it all is kind of circles around this word, therefore. Paul begins this section, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of, of God. Here's what I mean by that. In the first 11 chapters, now remember Paul doesn't use chapters when he's writing, he doesn't use verses, he's just writing a letter. Uh, we have added the, the chapters and verses, and in many ways it's a good thing, even though sometimes you run across, eh, probably, probably shouldn't change verses or chapters in this spot or that spot. But for the most part, they're very helpful. So we have seen, 
in the first 11 chapters, the greatness of God displayed, particularly in how he saves guilty, undeserving, sinful people. And um, it, is, it is that he justifies those guilty, undeserving, sinful people. Um, that is the gospel. That's the good news, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and because of Christ alone. It is, uh, it is the uniqueness of the good news that is found in Christianity, as opposed to uh, religion, whatever the religion is, wherever you choose to, to look or, or study or seek, in general, religion seeks to, to, to answer the question, uh, how can I get to God? Much like Christianity. It's the answer that differs. Religion says, I obey, so I will be accepted. Christianity, or the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, or if you want to narrow it down even further, what you learn in, in Romans chapters 1 through 11 is the truth that I am accepted, so I obey. Now, how am I accepted? I'm accepted in Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that we are made acceptable. That, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Um, Sometimes I can stumble over my words, and so I'm going to use a classic, one of the great hymns um, that we sing. And, and just, just let me, I won't sing it to you, but I do want to quote and, and just let you listen. Uh, because in this hymn, you see the beauty of what it means to be accepted, and therefore we live for Him. And in it, we have the answer why. Why do we live the way God wants us to live? So let me, let me just read this. Come ye sinners poor and needy. Ready? Come ye sinners poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorified. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust in truth. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. What, what powerful words that point to and, uh, and put a spotlight on the wonder of Jesus Christ and all that 
all that he has done. So, what, what we see in these 11 chapters is why Paul can say in chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And what he does is spend, he, he spends the next seven chapters explaining the wonders of that gospel, of that good news, and why this message of Christ is indeed good news, and what it means to those who trust Christ, who accept that good news, and appropriate it, and believe it. And so as we study, as we study the book of Romans, we call that section not ashamed. We learn what the gospel is, what it is that God has done for us. And like Paul, we kind of planted our flag and said, we're not ashamed of, of this message. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it and it alone, he and he alone can save. Then in chapter 8, Paul turns to, to describe our security in Christ and the reality of God holding us in the midst of our darkest times. And he really holds nothing back. He describes the fact that we live in a fallen world and even creation itself was affected by that fall, by the, by the sin of Adam and subsequently humanity's fall. Uh, he also addresses the question in, in this section of the Jews, the Jewish people, and why so many of them have rejected the Messiah that is promised in their Old Testament and their scriptures. So Paul wants us to be sure that the sovereign God will do as he pleases, and that includes the fact that he has always had a remnant of his people. Even as you're reading the Old Testament and you see how uh, the, 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 the Israelites turn from God and it's like they've all gone astray, he has always had a group of his own people that he has set aside and marked out for himself. His plan did prevail his plan will, will prevail. And right now, his plan includes, he tells us, his turning from the Jewish people to Gentiles or non-Jews. It doesn't mean that God cannot or will not save Jewish people. But it does mean that he, has, he is focusing and has been focused since early on in the, in the history of the church that he is focusing on those that did not have the privilege of the Old Testament scriptures, of, of the promise of what is known as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, who did not know of Moses. He brought in a people that knew nothing, much less they did not know God himself but God knew them and brought them to himself. So, as his people, 
coming out through chapter 11, we realize that we should never feel like things have gotten outside of God's care or his control. In other words, he has this. He has us. He has you if you are in Christ. So we call the middle section not adrift. Because even though it seems like life is out of control, God is never apart from his reign and rule in the lives of his people. God has it. He is in control, even though it seems like everything about us screams, no, it's not. So the last section, the last third or so of, of the letter deals with everyday life and, and how as God's people, we do life in the midst of other people. In other words, how we function within a group that is bigger than us and, and the necessity to, to associate and be a part of something bigger than us. We were not designed to live alone, to function alone. That's just a basic tenet of humanity. God did not create people to be alone. You just, if you can look at Genesis 1 and 2, uh, where scripture tells us that after he created the man, Adam, God determined it's not good that man should be alone. And, uh, and so he formed a helpmate, the woman, out of, out of Adam's side. That's true in just a general sense, but it is true in the life of the people of God. It's true in the life of a Christian, of someone that has encountered, has heard, has responded to the good news of Jesus Christ and trusted in Christ alone. He alone is our salvation, but he did not call us. He does not desire that we live alone. And throughout the life, the history of the last 2000 years in, in the church, from time to time, you see people that, that segment themselves away from the greater body of Christ, a, a, a local body of believers. And there are people today that do the same. There are people that have uh, come and joined Kaioki uh, that rarely ever attend, if, if some, in some cases, never attend. And uh, there's a misunderstanding on what it means to follow Jesus, and there's a misunderstanding on what it means to live for Jesus. So maybe, just maybe, you, uh, you're watching this online because maybe it's because you're sick. Maybe it's because you are temporarily out of being able to come and worship with the, with the people of God in a local church body. Uh, but maybe you have determined you don't need the church or you've been hurt by the church. You don't want to be a part. Maybe it's not worth your time 
to get in the car and drive to, to bring yourself or to bring your family and uh, or you've got better things to do and, and it all re re kind of revolves around that question again of why 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 is it that god has deemed that we are not to be alone so we need to understand that as God's people, we do life in the midst of other people. We do life in the midst of the church. And so because of this emphasis, we're, we are calling this section not alone. It's, it's interesting. Uh, John Stott, uh, in his commentary on Romans, when he reaches this last section, starting in chapter 12, he entitles it, the will of God for changed relationships. And uh, when you use the word relationships, you immediately introduce the fact of other people, of other people in your life. Relationships, plural. Without taking the glory off of our vertical relationship with our Father. In this section, Paul kindly yet strongly prompts us to recognize that an, a, a, a Godward gaze will bring about a horizontal love and commitment to others. And without that horizontal love and commitment to others, we are challenged to invoke or to trust that we have ever offered unto the Lord a Godward gaze. In other words, if I, if I am walking with Christ and I am trusting Him and living by His Word, then I pretty much can't ignore the fact that he has called you or called me to be a part of something bigger than me. To engage other people. To worship him alongside the saints. Chuck Swindoll uh, writes of this section, quote, believers, both as a body or the church, and as individuals stand at the intersection of God's grace from heaven and God's grace to the world. I love that picture. I love that picture. Someone that's walking through life and they are standing as a result of what God has done in their life through Jesus Christ, they stand at this intersection where the vertical and the horizontal cross. And they can continue to trust the Lord and have that vertical relationship with Him. But if they do so, we are compelled to look out and to look at others. And that begins with the people of God. So, uh, this, today I want us just to begin with uh, uh, this section, these two verses that we'll look at today and next time. And I want to call it the appeal to live for Christ. 
Or if you would, why live for Christ? But there's an appeal that Paul makes that answers the question, why? And I'll just simply uh, uh, encourage you to put your eyes back on verse 1. And he says, which I'm reading out of the ESV, I appeal to you, therefore. Some translations use the word, I, uh, I urge you. Some older translations use the word, I beseech you. He makes an appeal. He makes an urging that is predicated, this urging, this appeal that Paul makes to us is predicated on two things. Both of them are found in verse 1. And from, from, from what he, from everything he's going to say in this final section of the letter, they start right here. They start in verses 1 and 2. And mostly they start in verse 1 with this, this appeal that's predicated, first of all, on his therefore. He says, I appeal to you therefore. Remember, we said at the outset that the, the therefore is a bridge from everything he has said to what he's about to explain. Everything he has written to what comes next. The rest, in this case, the rest of the letter. And what is it? What is it that he's just written? He's written about the, the gospel, the good news. He's written about Jesus Christ and how he saves. If, if, if you would, he's written about the amazing grace of God and everything that is encompassed in that grace, all that the Lord has done. Okay? I appeal to you, therefore. Now, the, the second, second predicate uh, that the appeal is based on, still in verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, get this, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Again, everything he's just written in prior to this, in these first, in the first 11 chapters, he appeals to them by God's amazing mercy. I don't want to leave this here. I just want to take a snippet of, of the, the, these first 11 chapters and just kind of remind us, help us regain the sense of the mercy of God in our lives and how Paul is just caught up in this, this incredible mercy that God gives. So in chapter 9, bear with me, in chapter 9, uh, Paul is explaining how God has this, how he has, even though things may seem out of control, God's not out of control. He has this. And in verse 16, um, he writes this. So then, it depends not on human will. Now, what's, what depends not on human will? It, it is... Uh, it is the fact that God is going to see that his people are brought to him. In fact, verse 15, he quotes uh, a, a conversation that God has with Moses. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion. Now look at me. Get this. Get this. My salvation depends not on my human effort. In Kyoki, we often say salvation happens or can't happen until an individual comes to the end of themselves. All their striving, all their working, all their religious efforts, have, they have to die to. And when that happens, when, when you and I say, I cannot do this, there's no way I can be good enough, there's no way I can, uh, I can live for God in my own power. I need something outside of me. That's what he's talking about here. So, back to verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has underlined it, mercy. Who has mercy. Just a little bit later in verse 23, uh, he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 30, he writes, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, what a great reminder to us, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. He's talking about Gentiles and Jews, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So this idea of mercy is no small thing in Scripture, and particularly to Paul. And it is the mercies of God that Paul predicates, or he, he bases his appeal on why we live for Christ. So here's the point we'll be done. The sole reason for our life unto the Lord is based on what He has done and is doing and will do for us. These things are certain. What He has done, He has done. What he is doing, he will do. And what he will do, he will accomplish. That is the reason for our life under the Lord. He makes this appeal. This, he urges us, therefore, after all that he said about the gospel, about Christ, his work, his finished work, in the mercy of God. The mercies, notice it's plural, the mercies of God. So here we are. And we'll dig deeper and we'll see what that looks like next time. But I just want to, I just want to close with this. Here we are, right? And the question becomes, have I recognized my own need for someone outside of myself? Do I, in faith, trust and receive Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrection three days later, his sacrifice for my sin, and do I trust 
Jesus and Jesus alone? Or am I still trying to hang on to two worlds? Yes, I want Jesus, but yes, I'm going to work in order for him to look at me and accept me. He will not have, he will have none of that. I, I intentionally left out the chorus of our hymn earlier, Come, you sinners poor and needy. But wow, the author, Joseph Hart, nails the chorus as well. So let me close by just reading the chorus of Come, you sinners poor and needy. He writes, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Have you experienced the embrace of a Savior who says, come, come? Pray with me. Father, may we We come to the end of us. I pray for everyone watching this, that's listening, that Lord, they will, if they haven't already, come to the end of themselves and all their vain efforts, maybe as well-intended as they are, and they would taste and see the grace and the mercy of you, Father, that is found only in your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Grant them favor. Be honored in lives. May we arise and go to Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. We're going to close out this service as we, as we always do with, with a worship of the Lord and song. So we hope that you can connect those two things, the song, but primarily the worship of our great God in that song. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next time.